Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. I heard about the guest on today's episode, Dr. John Fitchin, a Multnomah County and Portland area birder, when I read about his new book on Shunning Finnegan's Facebook page. So social media strikes again. So I thought, boy, that sounds pretty cool. I should check this out, especially when I saw the, the title of the book, Life Through the Lens of a Dr. Birder, a memoir. Well, I'm a birder and I'm a doctor and I've had a life. I haven't written a memoir, but I should check it out. Anyway, read the book, really enjoyed it, and so contacted Dr. Fitchin, and he's agreed to be my guest today. So I'm excited about that. This episode will be a little different. It's focused on birding, of course, the Bird Banner podcast, but it also talks about other aspects of John's life, his life as a physician uh, and his some of his writings. And I think it's a pretty fascinating story. I really enjoyed his book, and I think he's been a fun guest today. Hope you enjoy the Bird Banner podcast, episode number 25, with Dr. John Fitchin. Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner podcast, and I'm with Dr. John Fitchin today. Uh, welcome, John. Hello, Ed. It's good to be with you. I yeah, look good, forward... good to have you on, too. I'm excited also. Great. I look forward to rubbing elbows uh, with you, a yeah, fellow be... a fellow doctor birder. Yes. I read your book recently, and I learned we have an awful lot of things in common. Really, it's, a, it's kind of amazing to me, the, the you know, parallel paths we took. I don't know if they're parallel or not at the same time, but... Going along the same you, course, uh, it's pretty pretty amazing you, to me. You go first, and then we'll compare. Okay. Yeah, I grew up in Oakland, Maine, a little town, uh, and uh, spent my summers at, at my family camp. Uh, it was on McGraw Pond in Oakland, Maine, and I uh, just explored. You know, I had a lot of freedom in those days. We had a little boat I could take out. And I had a couple of friends on the lake, and we just went all over the place, and uh you know, got home for lunch and dinner, but other than that, pretty much on our own. And so wow. had had a lot of great experiences. And I know you spent a lot of your summers at, at a summer camp, too. I did. Uh, a place called Camp Lanakila in, in Vermont. Uh, and as is in keeping with East Coast camps in the summer, it was a full summer experience. Out here in Oregon, uh, typically... It's a week or two, and then you go home. Right, uh, right. Not, not so at Camp Lanaquila. You were there for the, the full duration, uh, but it had an yeah. impact. I know on, there uh, there are a lot of those type of camps around where I grew up too. On the same lake, there were camps like that where kids came to from the city for the whole summer. Yeah. Sounds well, like okay. So, so we both grew up in the northeastern part of the country. You in New England. We did. I uh, exactly. I grew up in. In uh, Hamilton, New York, which is in okay. in New York, uh, it's a little town of about two thousand people. Uh, also home to Colgate University, where my father okay. was a professor of fine arts. Right. Uh, Very cool. And I went on from Hamilton High School to Amherst College in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And like you, was on the football team, and right, uh, right. Although I, I, I have, I think, I think my experience was different, Ed. My experience with college football was largely to sit on the bench. I had the pleasure of uh, being designated each week. I guess because I was the best of the strugs of the, yeah. the scrubs, excuse me, uh, 
so during the week, uh, I would be designated the star running back of whoever the op- opposition was. Yeah, and I basically <laughs> would get the crap beat out of me all week. And yeah. at the end of the season, senior year, uh, we had the game against Williams, our big rival. Right. And um, it was inevitable that I would be designated a guy named Eddie Wing, who was the okay. star running back of Williams. Right. And the coach, Smokey Jim Ostendarp, would call us together at the beginning of that week and say, we're playing a special team, special game. And they have this running back named Eddie Wing. And we're going to designate Fitchin Boy here to be Eddie Wing. <laughs> and okay. all week I want you to think about is get Eddie Wing. So, so <laughs> I was very active during the, during the week, not at all on the weekend. Um, yeah. But I'm still proud to have served, as you will. Yeah, I, I had a, a different experience. I went to Bowdoin College, which is a considerably smaller football program than Amherst. But we played Amherst every year. We played Amherst, yes, and Wesleyan, and always y- got crushed yep. by all three of those schools. No, that's not true. You were a threat. Yeah, you guys well, were maybe, a threat. Maybe your coach convinced you of that, but uh, we knew that we were kind of cannon, cannon fodder. fodder. Anyway, I, I I was lucky enough to play my you know my sophomore junior and senior years pretty much play all the time so that was fun I was I was a 185 pound middle guard. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> you so need I, you need uh, a few you need a few more pounds, young man. Well, I didn't have them in those days. I I've got them now, but I I didn't have them in those days. And uh, I I always used to joke that I may be small, but I'm slow, so I get by. <laughs> and anyway, uh, it, I, I I did just fine. It was a really fun experience, and uh, wouldn't trade it. Wouldn't trade it. So we went to. So we had the similarity. Went to a small liberal arts school in New England. Played football. Uh, went off to a local medical school. I went to Tufts, and I think you went to the University of Rochester. That's right. And and then uh, got through medical school, and it was in the time of the Vietnam War. You were at the beginning. I was at the end, but that was still a. Uh, a place that was not uh, high on most of our list as a place to go. Uh, that is for sure. Yeah, and you you went with the Berry Plan, didn't you? I did. Uh, the, yeah, tell the, us about that. I, a lot of listeners won't have a clue what that is. The the military during the Vietnam era uh, <clears throat> was interested in getting physicians that were a little more fully trained. So rather mm-hmm. than doing med school and your internship and then off to the military, you could defer uh, joining the military to get another year or two of specialty training, say, for example, in internal medicine, as Mm -hmm. was the case with me. And in exchange for this deferral of being drafted, which getting drafted was a certainty unless you did something to counteract it. Right. Um, we signed up for this Barry plan, in my case with the Air Force, uh, <clears throat> and did an extra year of residency before going into the military, into right. the Air Force. It was an effective way of delaying being drafted, but it didn't eliminate it. So I actually I had a lot of fun in the Air Force. I was in for two-plus years. Uh, which I think is quite a bit less mm-hmm. than you. 
it was neat because I got to learn about aerospace medicine and things like. Right, I know you. I know you're a flight surgeon. I read that in the book. That's. Uh, I was indeed. An interesting and, experience. Well, I a lot like of people, chapter. a lot of people think that uh, being a flight surgeon means you do operations in the air, and that's not yeah. the case. No. What you're trained to do is take care of flight personnel. I mostly tell them when they can't fly. It seems like yeah, that's well, thing. that's right. <laughs> and it reminds me of a story. There, we used to do on every Tuesday morning uh, annual physicals, uh-huh. and it was organized uh, anatomically. Mm-hmm. So you did eyes and ears, nose and throat, and uh, right on down. A couple of other notables, like the genitals, and yes. it was yeah, it was right. important that we do a rectal exam and and palpate the prostate to determine and and feel the testes as well to check for malignancies. Right. So one Tuesday, uh, one of the staff sergeants, Jonesy, we called him, came to me and mm-hmm. said, "Doc, we got a problem here." We got a full bird colonel uh, is throwing his elbows around and wanting special treatment. I wonder if you could check it out. So I went out in the waiting room, and there was indeed full flesh, a full bull colonel, and he was throwing his elbows around and saying, "We got to. You can't, you boys, take care of me quickly. I'm important, and I got main things to do." And I went up to the colonel and I said, "Now, colonel, I'm Doctor Fitchin, and." Uh, I'm I'm upset to see you so worked up. It's uh could cause you to elevate your blood pressure and you know that mean I'd have to ground your ass. And I think it'd be good if you could kind of take your turn in line just like everybody else. <laughs> he knew I had him, so to speak, by the yeah. balls. He had to yeah, cooperate. He, he was on your turf now. Yeah, that's right, turf. exactly. Anyway I, I was a I was a physician in the army and had not exactly the same experience, but, you know, uh, officers knew that uh, doctors have a lot of power, a lot of power in the military. They can they can keep you from doing things you want to do, and uh, you deserve a little respect for that. What was your, your grooming uh I, I was a family guideline. doctor. Uh, oh, grooming uh, is a little more strict, I think, in the Army than it might have been in the Air Force. Uh, no mustaches at all. Oh, we had, we could have him out to the corner of the mouth. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was after I was in the army. I I could be wrong on that. I I, I it was around that time that changed. The big thing that was uh, for me uh, was drug testing came in when I was an intern, and ah. uh, so the army was was the place you know that nobody wanted to go. I mean, in Vietnam, nobody wanted to go to the army, and. Uh, so they got a low caliber of recruit uh, and a lot of drug problems. You know, the emergency was a gun and drug problem. It was a big time problem. And then literally in about 18 months, that just disappeared. They did drug testing, got all these people out of the military. The war was over and it just cleaned up. So it was quite an amazing change from a you know, drug infested, problematic uh, a group of soldiers to pretty much button down, button down group in just a year or two. So, John, <laughs> uh, t- tell me how you got started in birding. 
Uh, I was going to say, is know, there a bird in this conversation somewhere? Yeah, I think we got to get there. Some of the <laughs> listeners kind of wonder, what? When I was a little kid, I used to go for nature walks with my father. And in particularly, in particular, we were interested in butterflies. But Dad had a global view of nature. And uh, starting when I was probably seven or eight, we used to go mm-hmm. for nature walks. That stuck in my head, and I got I learned stuff. I was interested enough to ask questions and listen to the answer. Um, so I remember one experience where I was down across the creek that was behind our house in a big mm-hmm. meadow, and uh, our Guinness Atlantis butterfly showed up. And that's a it's rare. It's right. uh, like a code four bird in birding. Okay. Uh, and my dad had been working on me to catch butterflies with a swoosh lateral movement mm-hmm. as opposed to a vertical down from the top. Uh-huh. And uh, so I saw this rare butterfly and I thought, oh, dad wants me to do this horizontal thing. And, but he didn't tell me that if the bird's all the way down on the ground, you should go with the vertical. So I I spooked the butterfly and it flew off and I was I was absolutely defeated. I just was in a tizzy. Ran home. Dad was in the backyard mowing. I jumped up on him and pounded my head on his chest. I said, "Dad, Dad, our goodness, land us." (laughs) Anyway. So that that sort of introduced me to what can be the woes of of searching for things in the natural environment. Rarities and will get you all the time. That's the right. So I I had that background, and it evolved over the years. And my older brother Alan, uh, who was nine years my senior, mm-hmm. uh, got interested in birding, and oh, okay. I didn't like it. I didn't like it that he had a lot more birds than I did, and so I decided to. Oh, he had a bigger list than you did. That's a problem. <laughs> That's the problem. But it emerged well, and I, I date the beginning of of birding in my life to about 1981. Uh, we lived in L.A., and we were sitting out on the front porch, and we saw a northern mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I don't know why, Ed, but for some reason, I chose to write it down. And I thought I ought to oh. have a proper ledger, someplace to keep mm-hmm. track of of the birds that I see. Okay. And so that was life bird number one. And doesn't mean that I hadn't seen robins and chickadees and sure. crows. And That's the, the first one you stuff. wrote down. First great, one blue heron down. Is my, great blue heron is my first, uh, my first is that official right? bird. Yeah. So, really? Where was that? That was at Back Bay, Newport in California. I was there visiting with my wife. And she she pointed it out to me. I, she was a birder. I didn't even know she was a birder at the time. But I said, oh, yeah, wow. that's, cool. that's a big bird. I, I know that one. Anyway, that's We need stuff. more women in birding. We do. We do. I, there's a, I read uh, somewhere today, I read about the Feminist Birding Club. Uh, uh, and it's a, a group of uh, inclusive group of people started in New York City, kind of spreading all through the nation. So 
I'm hoping I can get the, someone from the Feminist Birding Club on as a guest. It's going to be really fun. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you're right. We need a lot more diversity in birding. When it, when birding really got serious, I got introduced to Southeast Arizona and South Texas and oh yeah, uh, Cape May, and built a a reasonable ABA list. Right. Um, but the real change in trajectory came in, in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when I found out about Atu. Oh, boy. I, I was always lost about going there. Yeah. Oh, you know, man, it's a shame because there is no place like it. It's no, just, I've heard it's just phenomenal. Crazy. Tell me about your experience and, here. Sounds like that was something. Well, it was. I heard about it when I was on a pelagic trip out of Monterey, uh -huh. uh, and one of the guides had recently returned from Attu and was filling us full of stories about the experience there. And over time, I looked online and found more information and decided to go. And Ellen, my wife, was going to go with me. Oh, but we <laughs> we kept getting literature describing the rigors of the weather and the and modest uh, accommodations to overstate it. Um, and ultimately, she demurred, which was smart on her part. Good choice. Good choice. Yes, indeed. They made both of yours uh, experience better. Indeed. That's right. So I ended up going, and there were about... 85 people, about 10 of those were staff, 10 staff, and 8 MDs. Really? Uh, yeah. that, that, that came into play, actually, because, uh, as you know, Attu was a World War II battle site. Right. Um, and everywhere you look near the shore, there's rusting metal from tanks and... Uh, boats and what have you. Everything else, uh, sure. And this one guy, he was a real go-getter from New Jersey, stepped on a rusty piece of metal. And we were very concerned about that and thought he might be a risk for a tetanus. Uh, so we, we consulted and as you might imagine, since there were eight physicians, there were eight different opinions on what should eight, eight be done. Eight opinions, good. Yeah. But, but happily, there's a U.S. Navy Loran station on the island, which okay. has a medical officer. And, uh, Who can give so, the official opinion. Exactly. Exactly. We can't have eight opinions here. So he ultimately... He, he wouldn't stop birding. We told him, you got to go get a shot, and uh, the sooner the better. And he <laughs> didn't want to hear that. So he birded until the day was done, and then he went and got his shot, and everybody was happy, doctors and patients and, uh, and the, the Coast Guard. Good. So, Good. They, so what, was, but, what was birding there like? Birding was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. The birds that you would see were birds that were Eurasian, 
Right, and, and it's closer to Russia than it is to you know, Anchorage. By by a lot. Anchorage is fifteen hundred miles away. Yeah. Asia is one hundred and fifty miles away. Right. Uh, so you get a little southwesterly breeze blowing, and birds are blown out to sea, and then finally they see this uh, savior, Atu Island, and just right. drop out of the skies. It's like a fallout in Texas. There was one neat thing, a Eurasian, we had a separate building, which is where we ate. That's mm -hmm. another whole story, what the menu was. But anyway, <laughs> one, of the, one of the guides went out behind the mess hall and was relieving himself and drops out of this Eurasian bullfinch, what it was. So he was, he was on the horns of a dilemma. He was standing there minding his business and trying to decide what to do, namely stay put and hope that somebody else would wander out behind the building, or uh, should he go and seek others to be able to see this wonder? And he ultimately decided he had to go tell people. And so he went in the sure. mess hall and everybody dropped their food and crammed out the door. The cook was beaming from this big smile. I've been here before. You boys are crazy. And uh, we all filed out and the bullfinch had split. So immediately was organized a, a sweep of 80-plus people going up this uh, yeah. river gorge, spread out at 50-yard 50, 50 intervals, uh, searching for this elusive bird. And to, late in the day, some uh, a small group of birders came back from up high on the, on the river canyon and saw a brief flyover, a sort of gut-wrenching, was that a positive ID? Uh, and the bird was never seen again. But the usual story, actually, is that you do see the bird yeah. again. And there are all yeah. sorts of rarities that really ought to be in Asia, and they're on U.S. soil, yeah. so they count. They count? They're ABA ticks. That's, that's cool. And it sounds like just a whole experience. It, it, readers will enjoy that chapter in your book. Birders will enjoy that chapter in your book. It's uh, You get a real feel for how wonderful and awful it was to be there. Well, thank you. That's exactly you know, it, correct. It, that, that, yeah. that, uh, difficult uh, physical and uh, weather and every other aspect of experiences to see birds you can't get in the ABA anywhere else. So that, pretty pretty yeah. cool. Pretty cool chapter. I enjoyed that. Well, a lot. thank you. Uh, I enjoyed writing it. So, John, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna switch switch subjects. Yeah. Uh, you did a you did a Multnomah Big Year. Uh, tell us about that. I, I have a little experience with county big years. I'm I here in Pierce County. Bruce Labar and I and several others each year try to put up the best list we can. And uh, Will Brooks last year put up a yeah record breaking. I think 245 species or something. He's a UPS student. He was a guest a few few uh, episodes ago, just kind of blew us all away with his young ears and eyes. But uh, anyway, and it's so different now with eBird. I mean, it just, you know, I know you had the uh, once a week, uh, oh, yeah, probably a voicemail thing or something that that uh, you could do, but you know, a week later, pretty, pretty 
not that helpful. It, you're but, right. It, but tell us about your big. Well, year. at the end of the day, what it what it boils down to is time in the field. Um, yeah. We would we would respond to the the source of information here that was most important is something called OBAL, Oregon Birders Online. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And we would monitor that, but what really mattered was being out there and finding our own birds. Sure. That's not to say that we wouldn't respond if somebody saw an interesting bird, but we were largely on our own. And I had the pleasure of doing the big year with a guy named Ian Tomlinson, uh, a Brit. Uh, yes. About 20 years my junior. Uh, and All simply her? put, the best birder I've ever met in my life. He's got an ear that you wouldn't believe. Uh, he's fit. Uh, he's experienced and ultimately became a world birder. Uh, about 10 years ago, he passed the 5,000 bird life list. Uh, wow. And that's, that's has now has now become focused specifically on owls of the world. He's, I, oh, I think okay. it's something like 183 species, uh, which just a lot of time, a lot night. of time at night <laughs> is right. Um, but anyway, Ian was phenomenal. And we, the fact that there were two of us, it'd be a crappy day, rainy, windy, and say, ah, I think I'll sleep in today. And then, no, Ian was is counting on me to show up. I better do it. And he's... Yeah, someone to hold you accountable. Yes, that's right. Very good. Um, so we, we had a... We met at a Christmas bird count. And I was recently back from Attu and all fired up. And oh, yeah. we got talking and thought it might be interesting to do a big year. We didn't make uh, noises about this. We decided we were going to try it for three months or so and have a look at how we were doing. And if it looked promising, we would continue. So, in fact, we got off to a a good start and found at the end of three months that we were on pace to break the existing record, uh, which had been been established by a guy named Joe Evanich, a young birder Mm -hmm. from Portland, who actually, Mm -hmm. I could say this because I've talked to his parents many times and they know know about me. He had HIV. And amazingly, Ed, this guy got 200 birds in Multnomah County. I don't know how he did. He didn't have a car. Oh, my Um, goodness. But everybody knew him, and he would ask, could he go along? Or he'd heard there was good sure. birds somewhere. Could they direct him? So we knew we had a formidable task because we looked at the code ratings of all the birds previously seen yeah. in the county. Mm-hmm. And right. if we saw all the code one, code two, and code three birds, we would be at about 178. So we knew we had to oh, see a bunch yes. of rare birds. <laughs> the rest are code fours yeah. and fives. Which are not easy. No, it's not easy. So we plugged away. Ian 
hit 201 in early August. I this will give you some sense of our relative status here. Uh, <laughs> I, I hit I hit 201 in late September. Mm-hmm. At the end of the year, he had seen 225 species, shattering the old record. And as, as oh, you're yeah. probably aware, you you don't really get a full picture until it is getting down to the end of the year and you see whether you have a chance. Sure. And right. we, we decided at the very beginning that we would rely on, we would re- rely on each other for information, but each of us had his own list. We weren't doing it sure. to have a joint list. It was a cooperative competition. Very nicely said. So Ian ended up with 225. I ended up with 218. And I was good I was very pleased with the outcome actually because we both beat the old record. Yeah, by a long shot. We had a coordinated effort, but the better birder won. I mean, yeah, I hope you as it should I be. hope you get to meet him. I hope, as it should I hope be. all your listeners yeah. get, I'd get like to that. meet him. I'd like that. Yeah. Uh, we yeah, Bruce Labar is a good friend and, and Super birder. He's just extremely experienced and very good. And every year he puts up the biggest list in Pierce County. Uh, and uh, and then Will Brooks came to came up from Northern California to go to school at uh, UPS, which is about a mile from where Bruce and I. My are. younger son. And he just took the bird took the birding scene by storm. Oh my goodness! Yeah, isn't that something? Sorry, your younger son. It's really something when that yeah. happens. I'm sorry. What were you going to say about your younger son, John? Oh, I know. University of Puget Sound, UPS. My my younger son went there. Oh, yeah. So you know exactly what I'm saying. Hey, I was thinking about you the other day and wonder if we have a bird in common that showed up in Olympia, a red wing. The red red, red wing? I I, I, I think you mentioned that in your book. Yes, we have that bird in in common. Uh, And I think probably a couple of organ birds, I'm guessing. did you get the emperor goose on the Sandy River the year that uh, you did your big year? It seemed like it was there for a few years. Yes, I did. I also okay. We got that. I've I've seen an emperor goose in a park that's about a quarter mile from my house. That that, that oh, was really okay. bizarre. <laughs> yeah, that is. It cool. only stayed for two days, but that was it worked for me. It was nearby. I think the one I got was was almost an afterthought. A friend and I were on a. I think we went down to Sophie Island. We were just birding. We had a little time in the afternoon. So, well, let's just drive over and see if it's there. It was just right by the Bingo. boat. Bingo. Pretty cool. Tick. Life, lifer. I'll take it. Yeah. Good. Good. So, so John, you have done a, a lot of birding. I know you have a fabulous Multnomah list. One of the cool things that any birder will enjoy about your book, John, is the, the little uh, field notes at the end of every chapter for, I think it was your, maybe your last 20 or so uh uh, county birds to get to 300 in Multnomah County. That's right. Uh, it, it, to get 300 or 200? Three. Three, 300. Two, 300. Two, that's a fabulous. 200 list. plus. was 200 in a year. Yeah. That's yeah, right. 300, three, that's a fabulous list. Uh, I don't think anyone in, I live in Pierce County and uh, this is a big county. We've got Mount Rainier. We've got the Puget Sound. We've got the Fort Lewis Prairies. We've got a fabulous lot of habitat. and Nobody has 300 so that's that's spectacular. Well, it just it reveals my age. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> we've got some old folks here who've been birding a long time too, John, and uh, it reveals a fabulous amount of effort. That's what it reveals to yeah. me. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> been effort, effort with a lot of joy. Uh, I know that, you that's know that's the way birding is, anyway, isn't it? I, that there's that special feeling that happens. Yeah, it it makes you it makes you feel really good when you get a new bird, if even if it's just a county bird or a yard bird or. ABA bird or world bird, whatever. First times are, are always good. That's First for sure. And it's good. it's all the better if it ends up involving other birders. I mean, there's the... It does. Uh, there's the joy... Yeah, we of, have a bird that we know in, in common. Yeah. Shawnee Finnegan is, a, is an acquaintance of mine. Uh, she was a guest on a previous podcast. And actually, uh, I heard about you, or your book, really, on her Facebook page. So... She's uh, doing a little marketing for you, uh, and uh, so that was cool. I enjoyed that. How do you know Shawnee? I know Shawnee from being out in the field and running into her. Uh, mm-hmm. She is a fabulous birder, as you know. She is. Uh, yeah. She knows more about gulls than I know about all of all of birddom. Uh, she's. Yeah. She, she knows. She knows a lot. That's for sure. I, she did the cover art for your book, didn't she? She did. Yes. Yes. Very cool. Uh, I know. I know. And she she actually did that illustration for us. Uh, and then when I got to working on the book, it seemed just right to have some of her fine art, especially on the cover of my book. It was also amended by my elder son Matthew, who is a graphic designer. Uh-huh. And okay. he draped a stethoscope around the neck of right. I saw that. The warbler. Very nice. So, John, tell us about your book. How did you come to want to write a book, and and how how did it all come to be? It really started. Let me give a little background. I my career. Please. My medical career was in academic medicine, and in that role, I had a lot of experience publishing. Uh, but in that case, right. publishing scientific articles, uh, more than sure. more than 50 over the course of my career, two of which I'm proud to say were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I've also... I read about the first one. Yeah. I've also in your book. It's uh, fun. published uh, one previous book. It's entitled Birding Portland and Multnomah County. So it speaks okay. to the big year and life list. So I'm no stranger to the publication process, um, but I wanted to do something different, mm-hmm. something outside of the medical arena. And right. the other aspect of it is that over the years, I had told stories to my younger son, Marty, and his friends, who mm-hmm. I, I called the Pudknockers. Right. That's, you can read about it in the book. Anyway, I, I did. It was fun. I taught these kids how to play poker, and my son's a poker player, so I really I, I, I well, can relate God to that. Yeah, yeah, the parallels are staggering. So anyway, I had told them tales at the poker table, and they asked eventually, you know, John, why don't you write about your experiences? And took that to heart and started writing some 
chapters and they would ask me, have I written anything? And I'd say yes. And I'd give them a chapter and they'd come back and have some real input. These were guys in their early teens. So that was the beginning of, of the book. And then it just got momentum. And I did some deep thinking about what do I, what am I most proud of in my life? And what has turned me on the most in my life? And it was clear that medicine and birding were the highlights, if you will, to my life. And right, right. it sort of flowed from there. And I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that's sort of a strange combination, birding and medicine. But the more I got into really. it, it they're, really. they're quite connected. And, and, you know, if you look historically, most of the early uh, American ornithologists were physicians. A lot of them were military physicians. Really? Traveling with these, oh yeah, traveling with these expeditions. I, I, I wish I could come up with names, but a lot of the, if you look at the, the big names, a lot, of, a lot of the early ornithologists were military physicians traveling with expeditions, collecting and bringing things back to the Smithsonian and not the Smithsonian. But bringing things back to uh, Washington for collections, and so yeah, it's it's a common thing. Uh, Ed, where were you? Almost any. Where were you when I wrote the preface? <laughs> Speak into the microphone. <laughs> I'll write it down. I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, so I I'll, uh, I'll send you some notes. I appreciate it. It became evident to me that that medicine and birding do have a lot in common. They're both part of nature. They're extraordinarily complex, exciting, fulfilling, competitive. Moi, mm -hmm. Mr. Yes. My family tells me I'm competitive. I deny it, of course, but what's a guy going to say? And it's clear to me that both are rigorous and they reward close observation and curiosity and persistence. Speaking of uh, close observation, there's a... In one of the early pages of the book, there's a quote from Yogi Berra, which is, you can observe a lot by watching. And that's yes, the truth. Exactly. There's no substitute for getting out in the field. I always tell people that you find a lot more good birds when you go birding. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Way more than when you stay home. That's right. And the other thing is that good birders get lucky a lot more than... Uh, Birders who aren't so good. Yeah. <laughs> Say I, I missed it, Ed. Say it again. As good good birders get lucky a lot more often than people who aren't so good. You know, somehow the good birders always get lucky and find the rare birds, and the other birders just don't get so lucky. That's right. So I'm very interested in your podcast. When did you begin, and how's it going? I, I you know, my wife, my wife died about. Oh, I lose track. Uh, uh, more than a year ago, a year ago, March. Sorry. And I was a little, you know, yeah. And I had retired a while before that. And, uh, and, and mostly so I could have spent the last year or two with Kay. And uh, I, you know, became clear to me that I wasn't interested in going back to work full time. I was, you know, the, the time when I wasn't with her, I was having way too much fun birding and other things. Look for a passion, something to do. And I thought of a bunch of different things and I've, I was manager of my business. I've always kind of had a little 
interest in you know marketing and business and different things. And I just decided I, I'd try having a podcast. I started to enjoy listening to podcasts. And and so I, uh, I list a bird chick. Uh, her podcast one of the early ones that I listened to. And really enjoyed that and thought I could do that. And besides, I mean, what's not fun about uh, talking to birders about birding? Gives you a, a license to, gives you a license to call people up. You don't even know and say, Hey, how'd you like to talk to me for an hour or so? Yeah. I, I know this guy, John Fitch, and he might talk to me. We'll see. <laughs> so it's, it's been pretty good. I've been having fun. Well, that's neat. That's really fun. neat. I, I, I was, I wanted to, to say parenthetically, when you mentioned that you were a family practitioner, for your listeners out right. there, uh, I have enormous respect for family practitioners. Uh, I think about my practice of medicine, which is was focused primarily on leukemia and lymphoma, uh, and that was a lot to learn. And then a family practitioner has to know about pediatrics and obstetrics and internal medicine and general surgery. And the list goes on and on. It's just staggering to me that you can somehow find a place for all of that in your brain. It's very impressive. Well, you know, know, know knowing a little bit about a lot of things can, can help. And, uh, and, you know, one of the things, uh, and it kind of relates to birding a little bit, one of the things about medicine is you have to have some level of comfort with uncertainty. Uh, you know, that there's almost, it's rare that, you know, with a hundred percent certainty, you know, something you, you might know it with 99.9% certainty or 95% or Educa 75% or whatever. Education and, for and so, uncertainty. Education yeah, for you have uncertainty. To, you have to, that was the, exactly. You have to, the, you have to be comfortable with a, and know when it's okay to be uncertain and say, you know, this person's. I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm pretty darn sure it's not serious. Let's just give it a little time to see what happens versus the person says, I don't know what's going on, but this is not good. Let's let's really dig in and figure that out or get all the help I can. That's I think that's the, the art, and the, that's what made it fun. Education for uncertainty was the byword or bywords of, at the University of Rochester School of Medicine. They said that's, that's what we're oh, here okay. to do is to teach you that, about that held on to that through the years and what you just said is absolutely right but in birding you know the uncertainty it's the same thing when do you put a tick down oh. sometimes you're 100 percent. sometimes you're 100 percent sure of a bird and other times you're gosh i've gone through all the alternatives i can't think of anything else it could be and i know that bird so that's what it was and other times you say you just got to let it go because you're yeah. you think you saw a blackback woodpecker <clears> but god it could have been a three-toed i'm just not sure Got to let that one go. Yeah, so. Don't get me started. It's a that's a <laughs> topic that one needs to be gingerly with. Uh, yes, we all have our we all have our criterion. And the bottom line, it's my list, and and you know it's my list, and the only person who it matters to is me. And uh, yeah, I have to live with myself and my list. So B BVD better view desired exactly. I, ha I have some underwear birds myself. Yes. <laughs> some underwear birds myself. That's great. Yeah. Hey, folks, he's honest, too. Uh, yeah, I think we all do. We all do. Yeah. You know what it was, but gosh, you'd really like to see it better. Yeah. Anyway, John, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up. 
Thank you so much for being my guest today on the Bird Banner Podcast. I really appreciate talking with you. Talking with a fellow physician, Bird, has been fun. And uh, uh, birders and others will enjoy your book. It was a fun read. Uh, and I think uh, that's something, a nice addition to the birding, uh, casual birding. Work. My, my pleasure. Thanks for being on, John. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 25 with Dr. John Fitchin. I want to make sure that you check the podcast notes so you can find places to purchase his book. Uh, the title, as you remember, is Life Through the Lens of a Dr. Birder, a memoir. You can get it on Amazon. That's how I got it. Uh, but I'll make sure you put, I put links to his website. We can also get the book and, and find out more about Dr. Fitchin. I mentioned during the podcast that physicians have been birders for a long time, especially in the early military. Well, actually, Spencer Baird, one of the early uh, heroes of Smithsonian fame, uh, married the daughter of the Inspector General of the Army, and through that connection was able to obtain the services of many youthful, intelligent uh, military physicians who had lots of spare time on these expeditions and were avid collectors for the Smithsonian. And you know, some names of physicians in that role that you might notice are Dr. Co uh, Dr. James Cooper, uh, who of Cooper's Hawk fame, Adolphus Heerman, probably had a gull named after him, and John Fox Hammond. Uh, I'm not sure if it was he or two or three other physicians named Hammond who were in the military corps, uh, medical corps of the military at that time, who were avid ornithologists and birders. So a lot of uh, physicians in the early military expeditions and railway expeditions were naturalists and uh, birders, uh, ornithologists. So uh, I think I was correct in saying that the link between physicians and birders goes back a lot longer than Dr. John Fitchin and Dr. Ed Pullen. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to the Bird Bander podcast, episode number 25. Until next time, good birding. Good day.